All right, everybody ready? Okay, one, two, three, let's get it. You're listening to A Look Inside, a radiology podcast with your hosts, Keith and Steve. This week we have Mahesh Jayaraman, the Associate Professor of Diagnostic Imaging, Neurology, and Neuroscience at the Warren Alpert School of Medicine at Brown University. He's also the director of the Neurovascular Center and the director of Neurointerventional Radiology at Rhode Island Hospital. And we're talking strokes. What are they? How are they diagnosed? How are they managed? Hey, Mahesh, why should we act fast? When we're worried about a stroke, we're worried about something big going on in the brain. And there's two types of strokes. There's bleeding into the brain, or hemorrhagic strokes. And there's a ischemic stroke, which is a blood clot, blocking blood flow to a portion of the brain. FAST is a mnemonic that stands for face, arm, speech, and time. And the idea is that if you notice someone who has sudden drooping of one side of the face, and drift or weakness in the arm, so they can't keep their arm up, their speech is slurred or they're not making any sense, those are signs that you want to think about that could potentially be having a stroke. And the T is important for time because time is brain. The brain dies faster than any other organ in the body and is the most sensitive for blood flow of any of the organs in our body. When people see that, should they immediately call 911? Absolutely. Very important to call 911 um, because it's important to have the EMS services there. You want to come to the hospital. If you see those things in an ambulance, you don't want to be stuck in traffic, don't want to try to drive yourself and you want to have EMS there to ensure that what's happening is potentially a stroke and initiate the first part of stroke care, which is right in the field. What would be the primary influence of getting the EMS involved? So a couple of things. Number one is EMS can make sure it's not something um, such as a low blood sugar, which can very often mimic a stroke. And so if they come and they check the blood sugar and it's a low blood sugar, they can treat that right away. The second is EMS can assess not just for whether it's a stroke or not, but increasingly, we're trying to teach EMS to assess for the severity of the stroke and to see whether this is a minor stroke or potentially a major stroke. In some cases, patients with a suspected major stroke need to not go to the closest hospital, but to a hospital that can offer a higher, more specialized level of care. And that's one of the next big changes in stroke that we're trying to have uh, na- nationally is for EMS to recognize not just that it could be a stroke, but how bad of a stroke potentially is it. Okay. Um, So what would be the differences in a primary, secondary, or stroke-ready hospital? Sure. So when we talk about stroke centers, uh, much like trauma centers, we talk about different levels of care. The first level of care is an acute stroke-ready hospital. This is a hospital that has the ability to scan the patient. Remember I talked about whether it's an ischemic or hemorrhagic stroke. And the way we tell that is with a CAT scan. And uh, an acute stroke-ready hospital has to have the ability to do a CAT scan 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. They have to have the ability to have consultation with a neurologist. This is typically at most of these smaller hospitals done via telephone or via a televideo communications link. And they have to be able to give TPA. TPA is a clot-busting medicine that has been used for about 20 years in stroke. That's what's expected of an acute stroke-ready hospital. Once the treatment's done, some of these patients are actually transferred out of the acute stroke-ready hospital. They might not have the capability to care for the patient beyond that first few hours, but at the very least, they can initiate some of the emergent care. 
The next level up is a primary stroke center, and a primary stroke center has to be able to do all of those things that I just mentioned, but in addition needs to be able to care for the patient after they're admitted, and that includes specialized stroke units, the ability to have rehabilitation, the ability to care for patients' uh, families and their needs, assess them for social work, assess for physical and occupational therapy, and really help the patient reintegrate back into community. The final and the most uh, overreaching level is the comprehensive stroke center. So at a comprehensive stroke center, the ability to provide not just TPA, but the newest and most exciting treatment in stroke, which is catheter-based thrombectomy. And that's a procedure where we go directly into the arteries and find the clot that's blocking one of the large arteries and do it, pull the clot out using a variety of uh, catheters and tools. In addition, a comprehensive stroke center has 24 hours a day, seven day a week, in-house or directly available uh, coverage with neurology, neurosurgery, neurointerventional radiology, and all of the other specialties needed to care for these highest level of patients. We also care for all the hemorrhagic patients, those patients with bleeding into the brain, either from high blood pressure, a brain aneurysm, or from trauma. Those patients are typically cared for at comprehensive stroke centers. So is it a better strategy to get to the comprehensive center, or is it, like, okay to go to one place, get the, what they call the drip and ship, where they drip the GPA and then send you on the way? That's a great question, and that's a question that we are actively addressing uh, nationwide right now. In many, many ways, um, you want to not send every patient directly to the comprehensive stroke center, right? So someone could have a stroke, and it could be very mild symptoms, and they may just need TPA, and they may be... uh, able to get excellent care at their local community hospital. At the same time, patients who are having a major stroke where they completely can't move one side of their body, their entire right side, for example, is paralyzed, they can't speak, they can't understand, for that patient, it's highly likely that they're going to end up at the comprehensive stroke center, and there may be advantages to transporting those patients directly to the comprehensive stroke center. Some uh, locations have started doing this. Rhode Island is the first state to have statewide diversion based on field severity. So if a patient is picked up and is suspected of having a severe stroke, either from a blockage or from bleeding, and they're within 30 minutes of a comprehensive stroke center, they are expected to go directly there. But at the same time, if they have uh, assessed by EMS and thought to just have minor stroke symptoms, they are to be taken to the closest hospital, not diverted directly to the comprehensive center. Is the severity based off of any particular screening? Sure. In in Rhode Island, we use the LAMS, or the LA Motor Scale, which is a 0 to 5 scale, and 4 and 5 is considered highly likely of needing a comprehensive stroke center. If you have a LAMS scale of of 4 or 5, there's about a 60% chance you either have bleed in the brain or you have a blood clot in one of the uh, major arteries. And so we think that that's a pretty high likelihood that the patient will need to eventually get to a comprehensive center. And the drip and ship strategy that you talked about, where the patient goes to a primary stroke center first, unfortunately that adds about 90 to 120 minutes to the care of the patient. So it's a substantial delay. And that's not necessarily the fault of any one primary stroke center. It's just the way the system works. Once you get in a hospital, it's very hard to get out. And that kind of goes along with that time that you were talking about earlier, the importance of getting to the right place timely. Absolutely. The cold point is to try to get the right patient to the right place the first time. doesn't mean every patient to the comprehensive center, but if we can get the severe patients there first, that would be a huge savings for the patients. And then we are considered a comprehensive here at Rhode Island? That's right. Rhode Island Hospital is the only comprehensive stroke center uh, in 
uh, Rhode Island, and also actually we're only one of two that is Joint Commission certified as a comprehensive stroke center in the region. And is the certification based on what you were mentioning before, having um, access to CTs, having access to the neurointerventional team, as well as the neurology team? That's right. So the Comprehensive Stroke Center is expected to have 24-7 capability of handling the sickest patients. Um, and in fact, not even one, but we need to be able to handle two simultaneous patients. So not only do we need to have one team, we need to have a full backup team as well. So the expectation is that we could handle two of the sickest patients at any one time. So when a patient arrives at Rhode Island Hospital, what would be our like common triage standings? Do you run them through the stroke, stroke screening, or do you expect that to happen in the field? We ideally like that to happen in the field, um, and so I, uh, we have worked very hard with EMS to try to get as much notification ahead of time as possible so that we know when the patient's last time that they were last known normal, because we know that that ma matters in terms of what treatments are available. We would like to know if the patient's blood glucose is normal, if their blood pressure is within normal, and then once they arrive, we assess them briefly on the way to CAT scan. Um, when, People talk about trauma. They talk about these ABCs of airway, breathing, and circulation. Um, for me, with stroke, the ABC is if they have an airway and they're breathing, they go to CAT scan because that's where the answer is going to be found as to what's going on with the patient. Are there time benchmarks? Like, are you aiming for a certain time from the time they walk through the door to the time they get to CAT scan? Yep. So nationally, the expectation is that the CAT scan starts within 25 minutes of arrival and that the CAT scan uh, interpretation is done within 45 minutes of arrival. Of course, we're uh, much more aggressive with our time benchmarks. In fact, we go directly from the ambulance stretcher to CAT scan. We don't even stop in a room. And so the patient, the EMS crew will literally take the patient, put them on the CAT scan table. Our goal is to try to get that CAT scan done, ideally get started within 10 minutes of arrival. Are there other orders that get um, generated? Like, are you looking at lab work? Are you looking... Yep. So we, we typically have a complete set of labs. We look at their blood counts. We look at any of their bleeding parameters. Um, we do check their uh, electrolytes, but we don't wait for any testing before the CAT scan uh, because almost all of those things can be fixed afterwards, but the brain can't. Well, is there ever a time where, like, an MRI would trump the immediate CAT scan? So MRI is incredibly helpful um, because MRI can give you a better picture of the brain tissue. It can give you a more accurate picture of what amount of brain damage has been has already happened that's permanent. However, MRI is much less accessible and much more difficult to get patients into in such a timely fashion. You can imagine what's involved with MR screening, trying to get a uh, EMS unit to be screened prior to bringing the patient to MR is probably fraught with disaster. And outside of a very, very few small centers, and Rhode Island Hospital happens to be one of them that has 24-7 MRI in our ED, but most centers, frankly, don't have that capability. So the vast majority of stroke treatment decisions are made, certainly up front, with a CAT scan. So when we look at a CAT scan and a stroke patient, we're trying to answer a few questions. The first question is, is there a bleed? And the way we do that is with the non-contrast CT scan. The non-contrast scan is an excellent way to exclude hemorrhage in a patient. But beyond that, once we know that there's no hemorrhage, we don't know whether there is a blood clot or not. And so in this day and age, the next important step is to start looking at the blood vessels. And to do that, we do a CTA. So we at Rhode Island Hospital, every single stroke patient, regardless of severity, gets a CTA. 
The reason for that is because none of these clinical scales, such as the LA Motor Scale or the NIH Stroke Scale, can safely exclude the absence of an elbow. Just briefly touch on what an elbow is. An elbow is the worst kind of stroke. It's an emergent large vessel occlusion. And what that means is it's an occlusion of one of the major arteries supplying a substantial amount of brain. So this could be the internal carotid artery, the middle cerebral artery, or the basilar artery. Patients with strokes that are elbow strokes caused by occlusions in these branches, 75% of patients are dead or disabled at 90 days. It is the number one cause of long-term disability in the U.S. So this is the worst type of stroke to have. Some patients may have minor symptoms, such as just a little bit of weakness in the hand, a little bit of drooping of the face, and actually have one of these very, very deadly elbow strokes. So to do that, we get a CTA on every patient. Initially, what most centers have done is what we call single-phase CTA, where we get one scan that starts at the aortic arch and goes all the way up through the top of the skull. There is a new technique on CTA called multi-phase CTA that was developed by a neuroradiologist in Calgary uh, by, doc- by the name of Dr. Mayan Goyle, who's one of the world leaders in this field. And this involves two additional sequences. So we scan from the aortic arch to the top of the brain. We come back down and scan through the brain two additional times. What the multi-phase CTA allows us to see is whether or not there's an occlusion, and if there's an occlusion, are there other blood vessels, the collateral vessels, filling in the territory beyond the occlusion. And the way we use that information is if we see an occlusion and we see no filling of the territory beyond the occlusion on all three phases, we presume that it's probably too late to save that brain and that doing a procedure would be futile. How do you judge how... um how well it's uh, perfusing. So there's a variety of different scoring systems. Um, A lot of very smart people spend a lot of time calculating the uh, collateral score. Um, And for me, that's too much work at 2 in the morning, which is often when I have to look at these. And so I tend to have three categories. I have good, bad, and somewhere in between. So to me, a good collateral score means that I can see filling beyond the site of occlusion a little bit on the first phase, definitely on the second and third phases. Um, Sometimes it's even completely symmetric. A bad collateral score would mean that there is no filling even on the last phase beyond the point of occlusion. And in between might be someone that, for example, there's a clear asymmetry of one or two phases between between the first uh, side, which is the abnormal side, and the normal side. We used to do CT perfusion. Uh, and at one point, that was considered the gold standard. However, that seems to have gone the wayside, and you are much more uh, enthusiastic about the multi-phase. Could you just touch on what happened to perfusion and why? Sure. So um, I remember that time, and uh, several of my colleagues call that CT confusion as opposed to CT perfusion. So CT perfusion involves scanning continuously over a fixed slab while we watch the contrast come in and go out. The advantage of CT perfusion is you get a full dynamic acquisition over a period of time. Some of the disadvantages are primarily related to the fact that we used perfusion to try to help us figure out the two important questions, which is how much tissue is irreversibly damaged and how much tissue is at risk. The problem is it turns out that none of the CT perfusion parameters can reliably tell us for sure what territory is damaged and is beyond recovery. Um, On an MRI scan, we can use the diffusion-weighted image, and the diffusion-weighted image on MRI is pretty much a gold standard for what tissue is absolutely damaged. 
But unfortunately, on CAT scan with CT perfusion, what we thought was what we call the infarct core, or irreversibly damaged brain, isn't necessarily the case. The second problem with CT perfusion historically, although not as much of an issue now, is it used to take a long time to do the post-processing. I remember it used to take us 15-20 minutes to do the post-processing. Nowadays, what we know from the recent trials of thrombectomy is that every four-minute delay to reperfusion is one more patient out of 100 who does worse. So if you can imagine that an imaging scan that takes 20 to 30 minutes to post-process and make a decision on is not helping you, it's just cutting down time. In that regard, the advantage of multi-phase CTA is that there's no fancy post-processing. Even if the patient's head moves in the scanner, we can just eyeball it. We're just looking for visual gestalt, and we can do that with CT perfusion. We can't do that with CT perfusion the way we can with multi-phase. You've said that typically the gold standard here is to go to the CT, CTA immediately versus MR. There have been occasions, I believe, where we have taken patients directly to MR. Uh, granted, they're few and far between. What would prompt you to do that versus to bypass the CT and go to this DMR? So in the first six hours, the way we do the imaging at Rhode Island Hospital is we try to make the treatment decision for thrombectomy for the interventional procedure on the CT and CTA. Beyond six hours, we don't know for sure whether thrombectomy helps patients. We feel it does, but we don't have trials that have proven that. So at Rhode Island Hospital, we're participating in an important trial called Diffuse 3. In this trial, patients all have an MRI using both the diffusion-weighted image to try and tell us what's permanently damaged and MR perfusion, which is different from CT perfusion, but the same idea is to look at the blood flow in and out. If these patients on the MR have what we call a benign imaging profile, meaning a small amount of tissue that's permanently damaged and a large amount of tissue at risk, they are then randomized. About half these patients will get the thrombectomy procedure and half will get best medical therapy. So we generally use MRI at Rhode Island Hospital in patients who are beyond the six-hour time frame. The other group that we will use them on is patients, for example, that need repeat imaging. They may be a transfer, and perhaps they had a CT and a CTA at an outside hospital, and it's taken two, two and a half hours for them to come here. So if we're going to repeat the imaging anyway, we might as well repeat with MR as opposed to repeating with CAT scan since the MR tends to be more accurate about what is irreversibly damaged. When do you make the decision to take them to VIR? And if, if so, would you ever go to MRI first? So again, I think that uh, to me um, it's a very sort of uh, practical way of looking at it, and that is can I help this patient? So what do I need to know? I need to know if the patient has too much dead brain, and again, MRI is better than CAT scan, but if the CT looks really good, that's probably good enough. Number two is I need to know is there a clot that I can get to, and the CTA can basically tell you that in every situation. And number three is um, what is the patient's clinical status? Um, And if I can answer those three questions, with CT, which is, I would say, in our experience, about 80 to 90% of the time, we make the treatment decision on CT. About 10% of the time, the MRI is helpful if the CT findings are equivocal or if I'm not sure if I can help the patient. And I'll give you an example. We had a patient come in who had a uh, very, very minor clinical deficit but had an elbow. So this happens in a small percentage of patients. And so in this case, what we did is we said, hmm, We're not sure if we should do the treatment because we're not sure if we can help them. So let's get more information. And in that case, we did an MRI. 
And what the MRI showed us is very small amount of tissue that was damaged permanently and a large amount of tissue that was at risk for potential deterioration. So in that case, we use the MR to help make a treatment decision. But I would say in the vast majority of cases, you can make the decision on the CT and the CTA. Is there a benchmark from going from CT to vascular? So faster is always better. And um, at Rhode Island Hospital, we've sort of set a pretty aggressive benchmark, which is what we call our 30-60-90. We want to go from our hospital arrival to IV TPA in 30 minutes or less. We want to go from hospital arrival to the start of the angiogram, the puncture and interventional, in 60 minutes or less. Remember I said that we have the CAT scan done within 10 to 15 minutes, so ideally as fast as possible, but if that's 30 to 40 minutes from arrival, from CAT scan rather, to starting the procedure is, would be ideal. Is there a national standard? Nationally, uh, centers are struggling to meet these types of uh, time benchmarks. Uh, right now, the suggested national standards are that we'd go from hospital arrival to start of the procedure in about two hours. Um, we at Rhode Island think that's just too slow, so we've trying to, we're trying to push the envelope and trying to have people go faster rather than slower. Once they're in uh, VIR, do you guys go in and you remove the clot or you attempt to remove the clot? Um, is there any stenting that occurs after that to, to keep the vessel open like you might expect in a, a coronary situation, or is it just the clots removed and then? That's a great question, Steve. So in the coronary situation, very often there's an underlying narrowing. So the vessel may be 30 to 40 percent narrowed, and then all of a sudden gets blood clot right on that spot, or in some cases even more significantly narrowed. In the brain, the vast majority of these are clots that have traveled from elsewhere, either a narrowing in the carotid artery that is more proximal to where the occlusion is, or from the heart itself, which is where about 30 to 40 percent of blood clots come from. In the cases where the underlying artery is normal, we do our best not to do any stenting or angioplasty. We try to just take the clot out and leave it there. I would say in our experience here, about 10 percent of the time, the underlying artery has a narrowing and we have to do some form of angioplasty or stent, but that's the vast minority of cases. As far as the success of, of revascularization, how do you characterize that? Is there a, is there a score that's used? or a... Another great question. So the TICI score is typically used, and that's the thrombolysis and cerebral ischemia score. TICI is scored 0 to 3. A 0 or 1 means essentially no flow. A 2 is actually subdivided now into three categories, 2A, B, and C. 2A means it's less than 50%, 2B is more than 50%, and a 2C is more than 50%, but really closer to 90%. So there may be a couple of little tiny branches, but the vast majority of the territory has good flow. And a 3 is normal. You can't even tell it that the patient had a stroke. If I showed you the angiogram, you would say, yep, that's a normal angiogram. Is there any benefit to um, intra-arterial uh, TPA versus what would be given downstairs IV? Uh, An another excellent question. There was a trial many years ago that looked at this called a synthesis trial where they randomized patients to receiving IV TPA versus IA TPA. And that trial showed no benefit. Um, part of the problem is TPA does not tend to work on these big clots. So when we give TPA IV, these large artery clots, these elbows, only open up about 20% of the time. The second problem is that TPA infusion takes time. And so when people had infused TPA in the brain, we would typically infuse over one to two hours. 
Think about the fact that the brain is dying during that time, and it may take an hour and a half or two hours for the artery to open up, if it at all opens up with TPA. Compare that with the current devices that we can do thrombectomy in, and our average time from puncturing the femoral artery in the groin to having the vessel open really now is about 20 to 25 minutes. And we can get the vessel open completely or near completely about 90% of the time. And so we have substantially higher rates of recanalization than we ever did with giving intraarterial TPA. But do you still hit that 90% if, like, within a certain window? Is there, like, a certain window where that 90% falls off? No, it's it's really... um, you know, we can very often get the vessel open sort of irrespective of time. Um, I think your question is, does time influence the likelihood of getting the vessel open? Yes. And the answer is there's probably some, but with the current generation tools, we're probably pretty good at getting the vessel open. The question is, did the patient uh, make it a recovery? And that's the real question. So while it may not affect the impact of getting the vessel open, it may reduce the likelihood that the patient has a significant recovery with delay. Um, speaking of recovery, with the TIKI-3, you'd expect like full 100% recovery. Could you just um, kind of describe where you'd be in the middle and like if it had like a really low TIKI score? So it, it, you're absolutely right that the likelihood of good outcome is a function of how much recanalization you get. And some of our own research has shown that patients with TIKI-3 or TIKI-2C, which is that near-complete category, um, do exceptionally well. Uh, many of those patients are able to go to rehab or go back home, which is shocking given the type of stroke they've had. Patients who have less reperfusion or in whom reperfusion is delayed, even with complete reperfusion, they may have an existing stroke, then it's a matter of what we can do to recover the function. And that's where a lot of the post-stroke work comes in. We need to, A, ensure that they don't have another stroke, so identify what the cause of the stroke was and treat them so they don't have another stroke, but also really help them. And that's where the team of PT, OT, speech therapists, everyone that's looking at the patient in terms of how are they going to reintegrate back into their home? Are they going to be able to go to the bathroom? Are they going to be able to make it upstairs? Really practical considerations that patients need. Because remember, even though we have made dramatic strides, only about a quarter of our patients with treatment are completely back to normal. About half our patients still have residual disability. So it's tremendous improvement from a quarter being able to have any function to three quarters having any function. But still a substantial number of our patients still have residual disability. And so we need to improve the systems of care. We need to get patients access to faster treatment. We also need to make sure we do our best to help those those patients with residual strokes reintegrate back. And with that, you've talked multiple times about how it's like important to have good teamwork, starting at the very beginning, bringing EMS on board. What's the importance of having like a team that's used to dealing with these neurocritical patients? It's all about the experience and the team. Um, this is not the type of disease that you can handle well if you only see this once or twice a year. We are one of the busiest thrombectomy centers in the country at Rhode Island Hospital. There are centers that do in a year what we do in a week. Um, and, uh, and I kid you not. That, and so one of the really great benefits of working with our team here is everybody knows what they're doing and everyone is super specialized. So you come here, your uh, CAT scan 
technologists have done so many of these elbows. You go to a center where they may might not do a lot of CTAs, and the CTA takes 30 minutes because the technologists aren't used to it. Next, you look at the ED. The ED might take much longer because they're not used to dealing with these patients. Our technologists in vascular interventional radiology, we have a standardized case set up because we do this so frequently that we have a standard way of doing the cases. And so what that means is they don't even have to worry about who's on call. They don't have to worry about um, who's going to be doing the case. We have a single standard setup, and it's absolutely just routine. Uh, everybody on our team knows exactly what we're doing. And afterwards, they're being taken care of by dedicated stroke neurologists, dedicated neurointensivists, that this is all they do. Uh, you don't have any dabblers at a comprehensive stroke center. This is what everyone does. Do you ever have to worry about um, deterioration, and how would you fight through that? So clinical deterioration um, primarily is a function of not having restored brain function quickly enough. Um, so patients who have survived in, the, in this modern day and age, if you have somebody that comes in with a small amount of completed stroke and you're able to treat them and able to completely open the vessel, most of those patients do not deteriorate. Deterioration generally comes from patients who came in with a large amount of completed stroke and then you treat them and even with reopening the vessel, they may continue to swell from their stroke and that may cause problems in the brain because again, it's a closed box. There are things that we can try to try and treat the cerebral edema. There are things that the neurointensivists can do in the neurocritical care unit with uh, adjusting the patient's electrolytes, giving them very restrictive fluids to almost try to dry things out to reduce the amount of swelling. But sometimes that's not enough. In rare cases, we even do a procedure called a hemicraniectomy where a neurosurgeon will actually remove the bone overlying the side of the diseased brain and in doing so, give the brain room to swell out rather than in to try to protect the rest of the brain that wasn't permanently damaged. So time is everything. Um, would you consider education to, like, texts like me and Steve, uh, the general population, um, would you consider that just as important? Absolutely. Um, the most important thing we can do is have people prevent a stroke. And the way we do that is by people having uh, them live a healthy lifestyle. Don't smoke. If you're a diabetic, control your diabetes, control your blood pressure, control your cholesterol levels, get some exercise. That's the kind of stuff that it would be most impactful. Um, however, we know that uh, we've tried that kind of stuff for years, and that's not always successful. And so I think that from a patient and family education, I think that understanding what symptoms of a stroke may be, understanding that those are treatable, and to call 911. And then the next level is EMS education, having EMS understand that especially in this day and age when we have an incredibly effective treatment for the worst type of stroke, that it's not enough to say, yep, I think it's a stroke. Let's say one step further, take a minute in the field and start thinking about, okay, is this a minor stroke or likely an elbow or a hemorrhage, in which case directly going to the comprehensive stroke center may save valuable time. Now, as far as EMS in the field, the, the only tool they have, I mean, they can take the blood sugar to determine whether that's dropped. Is it just the LAM score at this point, that they, or do they have any other tools at their disposal to... So right now they just have clinical scales, and um, there have been some pilot projects using um, video conferencing and Google Glass type technology. But the really exciting thing is the concept of the mobile stroke unit. And with the mobile stroke unit, it's an ambulance that has the CT scanner in it. 
So it's almost like a primary stroke center on wheels, and it has the ability in the mobile stroke unit to do the CAT scan, determine if there's a hemorrhage, start the TPA, and now even do the CTA. So the CTA, to look for large vessel occlusion, can be done in the truck. So then, if the patient has a large vessel occlusion, they can go directly to a comprehensive stroke center. If they don't, they can stay in the community and go to a primary stroke center. Uh, mobile stroke units have been are being piloted in a variety of cities uh, in the U.S. Houston and Cleveland were the first two to have them. They are also operational now in Memphis, Toledo, Chicago. Um, UCLA is getting one for L.A. There's going to be one in New York. Um, and the whole concept started in Germany, in Berlin. So there are a variety of mobile stroke units that are being deployed. Uh, it's going to be a very exciting time to see if bringing the stroke care directly to the curbside can improve outcomes. And I imagine the images are sent via cloud uh, to either the neurointerventionalist or the neuroradiologist. Exactly. So the images are acquired on, on the truck, and they are sent via 4G uh, connection up to uh, up to the cloud, and they're accessible. And then there's either a, a, a trained physician, uh, a nurse practitioner, or a PA on the truck, or um, increasingly teleneurology or telemedicine consultation, so you can essentially do a Skype or FaceTime type of connection with the patient. That's awesome. <laughs> Good stuff. Yeah, um, really... Do you think that's going to happen around here? I would love it, and uh, my colleague Ryan McTaggart would probably love it even more. Um, but um, it, I think that it, it, they are there's some difficulties with getting something like that off the ground. Um, one is, and just being frank, is, is funding. And a part of the reason the funding is difficult is because uh, insurance companies haven't gotten to figure out how do I reimburse somebody for this type of thing. Uh, the care in the unit is uh, somewhat prohibitive up front compared to just having a regular ER, but the savings on the back end for the number one cause of disability are monumental. So it's incredibly cost-effective when you factor in the savings on the back end. Uh, but there are, you know, some logistical hurdles to getting that type of technology implemented. Along with the logistics of that, are, we, are you finding any, um, and this would be yeah, pertinent to just Rhode Island because that's where we are, but are there any issues with continuity of care between uh, other institutions, physicians, and ourselves? Are we running into any kind of uh, roadblocks that might be prohibitive in expanding the, the whole stroke program? No, I think that, um, you know, as we expand and we try to do the right thing for patients, which is to get patients directly to a comprehensive stroke center if their field severity score meets that criteria, um, understandably some primary stroke centers are concerned that they may be bypassed. Um, and I think they need to understand that the goal is never to try to eliminate them or remove them or bypass patients, but be intelligent in who goes where. We do this for trauma. If a patient has a minor fender bender and they just need a cut sewed up, they can go to their local hospital. But if they're ejected and they look really sick from the scene, they don't go to the local hospital first. They go to the level one trauma center first. We do this for heart attack. Um, so why can't we do this for a disease that's even more time sensitive than trauma or uh, heart attack? So you mentioned that it was the number one uh, cause of disability. Any chance of us knocking that down with the stuff we've talked about today? I think we definitely can. I think that um, obviously it starts at the very front with patient education, uh, having people live a healthier lifestyle, having people understand to call 911. Um, 
but then we really have to improve the systems of care. And the way we improve the systems of care is to get the right patient to the right hospital the first time. We can do that with uh, field protocols so that EMS can use severity to guide where they go as opposed to purely geography. We can do that with optimized protocols for transferring patients if they do end up at a primary stroke center directly to a comprehensive center. And um, ultimately, ideally, with a mobile stroke unit. So these are all different opportunities that we have to try to reduce uh, the toll that stroke takes on not just patients, but also families. This has been A Look Inside, a radiology podcast based out of Rhode Island Hospital. I'm Keith. I'd like to thank my co-host, Steve, and this week's guest, Mahesh Jayarami. Check us out on Facebook at Look Inside Radiology. Find us on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. Music for this episode is brought to you by Audiodacity. You can find them on Facebook, on iTunes, or at audiodacity.bandcamp.com. We feature music from their album, On a Roll. Lastly, if you have any questions or comments about this episode, or any others, email us at a look inside radiology at gmail.com. We'll attempt to answer any of your questions on air. To feel this way, this rhythm fits my style just nice and it's here to stay.